Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And welcome in. We're back. It's another episode. It's another edition of Let's Hear It. You've found us. We found you. We're glad you're here. We found ourselves. <laughs> we found ourselves. <laughs> Mr. Brown, we find you at we, long last. How have you been? I've at long last, sir. I've been I've been as well as can be expected given the circumstances of our situation. No, I'm 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 very well. Thank you. Well, it's true. Our situation is challenging. I will say that we need to acknowledge the fact that we've been off for a little bit because some of us have been gallivanting around the world and others of us have been incredibly busy. I'm not going to say which of us is which on that, but uh, but we're back for we're back for another episode, another edition of Let's Hear It. Whatever it is, I'm guilty and I'm not guilty. <laughs> so who do we have today? We've got an, we've got another crony, but I don't know where this crony is is located this time. Is it is it is it a crony in a cocktail? Is it a crony in a closet? Where's this a, crony? It is a crony in an office, yeah. in person, like people, like humans. Remember the old days? Astounding. Glenn, yes, my uh, my guest, our guest this week is Glenn Gallich, who is the CEO of the Stupsky Foundation here in the great city of San Francisco, and. Glenn, I, I reference he, the fact that, the fact that he used to be known as Glenn Glenn Galich, but his <laughs> his wife his wife said actually your name is pronounced Galich because she had done the family whatever and encouraged him to return to the actual pronunciation of his name. So he is now Glenn Galich. He used to be Glenn Galich. So when good. I knew he's Galich, now he's Galich. So anyway, and he is the CEO of the Stepsky Foundation. And I let me just say mm. that I think that this is a very interesting and fun interview. And if yes, you had, it is. If you're here and listening, then you're going to probably listen anyway, no matter what. But I would say don't uh, don't not listen. Mm. That's my no, that's my advice. Glenn, uh, Glenn, is so generous to give us this time, give us these perspectives. And Stupsky is going through some very interesting transitions. So let's listen to Glenn. And Glenn, thank you for joining us. And Eric, thank you for doing this. Let's listen and let's come back because we've got a lot to get to, as usual. So here's Glenn Galich. On... Galich! <laughs> let's hear it. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest today is Glenn Galich, formerly Glenn Galich. That's true. But... Due to, as we have just discussed, matrilineal reversal, yes. the the uh, pronunciation is back to Galich, the CEO of the Stupsky Foundation. Glenn, my friend, thank you so much for taking the time. And here we are in person, yeah. fully vaccinated. Don't let anyone know. I'm not telling his soul. <laughs> at, we're at undisclosed location uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Right. And right. Uh, having this conversation in person, thank you so much for coming on to Let's Hear It. It is just a pleasure. I'm really excited to do this. Um, and I'm also excited that Wikipedia will now have a new entry for matrilineal reversal. Uh, you know, which is very exciting. It's 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 nice to be at the at the forefront of something. <laughs> You're at the forefront of many things, Eric. <laughs> but I can't the I actually line. can't I can't believe that we're sitting here. We've known each other now for what about almost 20 years. Yeah. And uh used to walk the hallowed quite silent hallways of the Hewlett Foundation. <laughs> library-like, dead library-like. Glenn, what's that sound? I think that was a pin drop. Yeah. <laughs> I think we used to disrupt it all the That's time. Right. <laughs> That's right. And then someone would go, shh. Right. Yes, yes. That's better. Yes. I think it was Paul. It was Paul Brest, yes. <laughs> God bless Paul Brest. I owe, right. owe him 
basically everything I have. Right, right. Many of us do. Many of us do. <laughs> well, Glenn, you are now the CEO, a long way from our hallowed halls days at the right. Hewlett Foundation, the CEO of the Stupsky Foundation, where you've been CEO since 2015. Yes. When the Stupsky Foundation was created, right? Well, uh, the, that was when the grant-making version of the Stupsky Foundation was created, which we still to this day, sometimes we call it 2.0, sometimes we call it 3.0. Um, but it, at that point, uh, sh- shortly before that time, Larry Stupsky passed away. And when he passed away, uh, his wife, Joyce, um, who was a co-founder of the original operation, operational foundation, it was an operating foundation that really focused on transforming education across the United States. Um, at the time that, um, that he passed away, they made the decision to shut down the foundation, and she, with his you know, final day's support, restarted it as a grant-making spend-down foundation, well, which— We're going to get into whoa. that. We're going to get into that soon, and, yeah. and, and, and fulsomely, I guess. That's an, that is an actual word I'm not coining at all. Uh, but I want to—so you are an interesting dude. Is, is, is that right? Yes. I, I, I'm telling you. <laughs> Now you know you're an interesting dude. You are you you have a PhD, yeah. uh, and you are a, a former uh, drive time talk radio host. That's correct. That's correct. So th- th- putting me in an extremely intimidated uh, perspective. <laughs> Although as as you told me, <laughs> as you told me in the past, you had to fill four hours of. Yes. It was Air America, wasn't it? It was the, what preceded Air America, Working Assets Broadcasting. Whoa. Which for those of you that had Working Assets as your long distance carrier, yes. they made a, they took a shot at radio back when the internet wasn't quite ready for radio. But we were hoping to be an internet radio network. Uh, and um, yeah, we had a number of people that have moved on, some that went to Air America. Yeah. Well, so the, um, but, so you had to fill four hours. Yes. Each and every day. <laughs> Thank goodness for commercials. That's all I could say. Because it wasn't a solid four, but it but it it was a lot of content. Uh, so I, I am immediately, as I say, intimidated uh, by that. <laughs> Although, as you also noted, uh, when you have to fill four hours, you talk a lot. You do. What you... we're trying to do is collapse everything, turn it into a right. tincture. A tincture. Yes, in, that's in, right. In thirty minutes. Yes. Well. Uh, and radio's better in 30 minutes than four <laughs> hours. Trust me. <laughs> Back then, we didn't have these things called podcasts. No. And us, and us radio people, you know, are highly judgmental of the podcast world. I'm sure you are. But yours is the best one. So <laughs> it doesn't, I feel so lucky just to be here. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Uh, anyway, let's, let's just move on. Sure. From, from sure. <laughs> yes. How did you, uh, all right, give us a little tour of how you ended up sitting in this in these uh, undisclosed, in this undisclosed Western Hemisphere location, <laughs> H- how did you end up running a foundation? Uh, yeah, that's a roller coaster ride uh, to get to to Stupsky. But what I uh, so the radio part had its role. Um, I when I was on the air back then, and I well things have changed a lot. There wasn't an MSNBC. There wasn't uh, any form of progressive talk at all, uh, other than um, NPR, and although it's not supposed to be progressive, but that's where the progressives go. So we were, that was our competition, was really Pacifica and NPR, which is weird, because we were an AM station competing with FM. So I don't know how you win that battle. We didn't. So, um, but I, I contacted the Democratic Party and said, you have no place to put your people. So how would you like to be on my show? And they set up an ISDN line, which is a high, um, it's just a very clean line. And I would be on the air and they would say, Bernie, San- my producer would say, Bernie Sanders is ready to talk to you. Before he was the Bernie Sanders, he was at the time a congressman from Vermont. Nancy Pelosi is going to be on. Uh, she was a congresswoman from San Francisco, not the Speaker of the House, nor did anyone even think of it back then. And that led to quite a long list of um interesting people. And when I came to San Francisco from Boulder, which is where I did the show, uh, I was, the World Affairs Council was interested in talking to me because I'd had this long list of, they thought he can get anybody, right? But Jane Wales was smarter than that. And she did not make me the director of programs, but she did uh, 
put me in charge of a, of a project called the Global Philanthropy Forum that, that was, a, was a, it's a project of the Hewlett Foundation, the TOSA Foundation, and several other foundations chipped in. And it, the idea was that we could, do, we could bring together a group of donors um, and a large group. The goal was to put like 300 donors in a room to talk about international philanthropy, which in 2001 was not uh, a common area of philanthropy. Uh, with the help of many people, including the late Julia Gimon, who was uh, a good friend of mine. She taught me philanthropy. Um, and we put together the Global Philanthropy Forum with Jane's uh, oversight and, and brilliance, really. And, and today, I think, it, I think it still exists. I'm not sure. I haven't been to one in a long time, but it was a tremendous success in its first several years. And that launched my philanthropy career, because at that point, I had... I remember when Jane said to me, would you like to run the Global Philanthropy Forum? I said, sure. And then I turned to my wife and said, what's philanthropy? <laughs> I, can, I know global and I know forums, but I don't know much about philanthropy. So that really started it. What ended up happening was um, that led to uh, working at and eventually running the philanthropy workshop, which is just a gem of, in my view, of um, – of, of the field and that it's a place for individual donors to go to learn how to be strategic. And on top of it, um, you really, they, they, they become a, a tremendous network and many, many, many amazing initiatives have started as a result of the people that have been a part of the philanthropy workshop. So the, 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 the part that I find humorous is that for, uh, at that, at the time I left the philanthropy workshop, I had been 10 years working one way or another in the organization and, here I am advising people on how to give money, how to think strategically. And some of them really, really put a lot of trust in me, which I'm grateful for. But one time I woke up and just said, you know what? I should actually make a grant before I tell people how to make a grant any further. <laughs> and that's what led to, uh, uh, you know, eventually working with the Stepsky Foundation. I thought initially at the time that I uh, applied for the position, I was applying for a vice president role. And Sterling Sparron, the great Sterling Sparron, was the president of the Stepsky Foundation for a brief time. It was about a year, year and a half. And he made the decision to step down. And somehow or another, they took a look at my uh, CV and said, we should talk to him. I don't know why, but they did. And Joyce and I really hit it off, Joyce Stepsky and I. We, we had a good run. And um, it's, it's been a tremendous experience uh, start to finish. Although we're, just, we're not finished yet, but we're moving through. Uh, to this point, yeah. And uh, for folks who don't know, Joyce Stupsky recently passed. I just she did, to yeah. Extend my condolences. Yeah, it's, thank it's, you. It's, it's it was loss. last month. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, that's the thing about a family foundation. Uh, you need the family to make it to make that fit. And so, uh, with Larry and Joyce now gone, um, we're in a bit of a interesting period of trying to figure out who we are, uh, although we know who we are, we just want to, you know, who we are without them. Mm -hmm. I think that's the key point. And, um, and there's a definite hole there. I really miss her. Um, I didn't realize how much I would, but uh, as every day goes by, I'm remembering things. And we just had a very, very close, good relationship. You hear, I don't, I don't know if people hear this or not, but because so much of the real part of philanthropy is hidden away in dark corners that we don't talk about very often. We love to celebrate ourselves endlessly. But one part of uh, you do hear uh, from other presidents and CEOs and executive directors of family foundations, it's very difficult to manage the relationships with the family, um, whether it's the family between themselves or the family with the CEO. It's very challenging. I never had that. You know, I never, I never experienced that. I only... Um, really honestly had great times. And I would tell you if they weren't. Of course. Uh, and she was, just, she was just so supportive and so willing to let me run with things and the team. And she loved the team. Um, and in the last couple of years as she became, as her health continued to kind of decline, you, you really felt different around here because she was oftentimes, not, not here in the secret location we're at, but uh, <laughs> she oftentimes was in the office and she was in people's offices and everybody loved seeing her and talking to her and hearing stories. And, and she was always very interested in everyone else. So it was a very special experience. Um, not going to be replicated, you know. So trying to figure that out right now. It's different. 
So you, you obviously studied philanthropy. You worked with philanthropists, yeah. and then one day, and you came on as in one position, and shortly thereafter, we're elevated to CEO. Is that how how it happened? Yes, I mean, I, I when things uh, quickly shifted after Sterling left, um, Joyce wanted to hold the CEO title for a little while just to ensure that there was stability. So it was a brief period of time. I came in initially as a COO. Um, I would never want to stake my claim to that. Uh, and eventually she said, you know, I really think that was the intention. So you run it. So after about six months, I was running the foundation completely. What? I always meant to ask all the CEO folks I've spoken with, what's it like to run a... So they hand you the keys to the foundation yeah. and say, here, here, Glenn, don't crash the car. How do you... What do you think about? How do you start thinking about how to run the organization, how to think about grant making, yeah. strategy, all that stuff. You spent a lot of time thinking about philanthropy strategy, and now all of a sudden it's your strategy to help craft, obviously in partnership with your donor but right. and, and, and the board, needless to say. But how do you start thinking about that kind of thing? Well, that is a great question. And so let me go back to the first part of your question, which is what is it like to be a CEO of a foundation? And I have to say it really changes day to day in a weird way. And I think it's the same if you're leading anything. You, you, know, you go in and out of periods where you feel like you've got it. I've got this thing. And then you hit periods where you definitely do not. And sometimes that can happen hourly. Sometimes it can happen daily. Sometimes it can happen over months. And so uh, I'd say the biggest challenge of it is that, uh, again, this is not unique to philanthropy, I don't think at all, but um, you just, uh, you, you're kind of on an island at times, you know, and again, going back to Joyce, this was a nice feature with Joyce in that I could go to her and say, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with something here, what do you think? And she would give me her opinion, and then she would always say, you know, but you're the boss, so you do what you need to do, and we'll see how it goes. So that, in a way, is kind of a, mere, uh, a window into what it's like. Um, I did, you know, when I arrived here, the issue areas were determined. Uh, I, I and 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 that's another conversation to have another time as to whether foundations should have issue areas. I have uh, increasingly, even though I think in issue areas, I, I, I I'm increasingly wondering if that's a good use. That's a good way to focus the strategy of a foundation. Um, but they were set. Uh, and at the time, they were hunger, uh, what we called life options for um, basically young people of color, and um, what we called end-of-life care at the time. And uh, so what we did right away to get to the strategy part is I hired um, a couple of very sharp strategists, and uh, they and I you know, had the benefit of some landscape studies that have been done in the issue areas. And we immediately went out and started talking to everyone and trying to really figure out, um, you know, in a spend down context. And Joyce was a, she, she was all over the website when I started. Everything was dream big, be big. Now, we don't have the largest endowment. Um, you know, when all is said and done after earnings are in over 10 years, 10, 15 years, we will likely spend out about 400 to $500 million. Um, and so we work exclusively in San Francisco, Alameda, and the state of Hawaii. Any one of those issue areas, if you think about it, is probably in the zone of billions, if not trillions, in, 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 a challenge, in challenges and problems and opportunities. And um, so <laughs> when you're dealing in hundreds of millions, you really are coming out at Goliath with a pea shooter. And so that really required a lot of thinking about how can we get leverage, lots of leverage on what we're doing. Uh, and so without going into the details of it, we eventually landed on a set of strategies that we are still powering through today. And again, not, I know you want to get into the spend down later, but I will say <clears throat> when you have a, a bookend to the story known, which for us is 2029, there is no, you know, how foundations love to go like on a five-year strategic plan and then they change it and go on another five-year strategic. We don't get that luxury, which I think is healthy. I think one of the great benefits of a spend down is that you have to stick to it. Otherwise, you know, you, you're, you're going to have to start over with maybe two years left or three years left. So that, that is a tremendous benefit of a spend down. You've got to go the distance. And so um, 
We've made some tweaks to the issue areas, the names of the issue areas. We're now in food security and not hunger. We're now in post-secondary success and not life options. We're now in serious illness care instead of end of life. Turns out when you have an issue area called end of life care, people aren't excited about it as much as serious illness care. Branding. Um, words matter. Words matter. Damn. Words matter, Eric. I knew it. You are one person that I think I knew it. can stand firmly on that one. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We're sure. going to continue with Glenn Galich, nay, Galich, <laughs> right after the break. <laughs> You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. My guest is Glenn Gallich, the CEO of the Stupsky Foundation. And I have to tell you that here in the Bay Area... Uh, when you're talking with grantees or you're talking with other funders, your name comes up, or the Stupsky's name comes mm. up. Somehow you have managed to be uh, a, a presence. Mm. And and I think that's partly a result of the work that you do in the issue areas, and partly it's a result of how you communicate, and people just kind of have this understanding about what's going on. Can you just talk about, and we can go back, we have all sorts of things to talk about in the last 15 minutes of our time. We can do this. Um, but but do you have a sense of why that is? I mean, I know that you're a communicator. You use communications really well and you think about it. What is it that you think enables the foundation to uh, connect with other folks, even if they're not funding in the same areas? Uh, well, I can. I, first of all, I have to give an enormous amount of credit to our communications director, Claire Callahan, who um, who has been working very closely with the group you introduced me to, Spitfire Strategies. All hail. Yes. All uh, hail. Now, we haven't had the benefit of Kristen in our office all the time, Kristen Grimm, but we do have Aaron Hart, who is just fantastic. And so the short of it is Aaron and Claire have had a very close relationship. Claire has become incredibly effective at... Uh, what we what we what we all are striving to do. I hope more of the field is striving to do. And I've had a lot to learn here myself about engaging community voice and decentering the foundation's voice. And so I would say, in many ways, that's where the strength of the communication comes from. <clears throat> On the other hand, I've, I'm I'm very interested myself in in communicating uh, thoughts. I'll put it that way. Uh, Claire has <laughs> no feelings. Claire has just had, yes, thoughts. just thoughts. Claire has had a challenge in ensuring that I stay within the lines. Uh, there's a great moment <laughs> where I pose. I was so frustrated with philanthropy one day. I wrote this piece about the need to just shut down foundations and spend out the money. Why are we sitting on it? Why are we acting like hedge funds that give away a little money? Let's do this. And she was not particularly pleased with what I had to say. So I walked into the office and there were exclamation points on post-its. There must have been a 200 of them <laughs> saying, get in the office right now. <laughs> but I do, I, I have strong feelings about the field. And I will say, you know, the challenge, so, so let me start by saying, I think it's, it's important to be self-critical. It's important to be sectorally critical. And I think it's important for that to come from people on the inside. <laughs> There's plenty of criticism out there in, in books and otherwise from the outside, journalists, former foundation staff. But you don't see a lot from people on the inside. We have this, uh, I think, I don't know. There's a lot of reasons why I think that happens. But I, I really feel it should be that way. Now, that the, the key here is that you're walking a fine line uh, when you are communicating as the CEO of a foundation because you are, in theory and maybe in reality, representing the foundation and you're representing the viewpoints of the foundation. So I have had to really self-edit quite a bit, to be fair, because I haven't, you know, when a thought hits me or when I see something, for example, I'm particularly focused on how we invest our money and why so much of that, so much of the assets sit on the sidelines for a year uh, or every year. Uh, or worse, they're invested in 
in things that are making the world worse. In fact, if you look at 95% of our assets on average sitting in things that make the world worse, that's a challenge we create ourselves. I don't know if everybody on the board shares that viewpoint. Um, You know, there's a very fair, honest, and genuine viewpoint that it's important to make money to give money away. I appreciate that. I guess I'd say how you make that money and how, and and if it, especially in a spend-down environment, why you would need to make more money has always been my own challenge. And I am not aligned with my board on that. So uh, that said, to your question, I've tried to really be provocative, spark uh, conversations where I can. And there's a sizable number of people out there, uh, a percentage of philanthropy who are asking the same questions and who are wondering, you know, how do we get here? Um, so I, you know, I think to some degree how Claire is operating, how our partnership works, um, we've, I think we've been able to raise the volume on some things and, um, and then I guess as a result, the brand of Stepsky has, has benefited from that, if that's important. So uh, for all you foundation CEOs out there, try, you know, pay attention to your communications leads <laughs> for all your communications leads out there. <laughs> <laughs> Do what you can to throw a net over your boss right. when, when the time uh, requires it. I want to talk a little bit more about spend down because you have been such a, a forceful advocate for spending down. Yeah. Uh, you, so you talked about how – so for, for starters, it sounds like you have an eight-year strategy because you're spending down in eight years. Right. You're going to commit your resources right. to certain strategies to come to that place, which I understand not only that, but the corpus or the money that you have goes a lot – you know, you can crank it way up because you're not trying to make the money last literally forever. Right. Instead, you could spend more than you would otherwise do if you were a foundation that was designed for perpetuity. So you you act a lot bigger than you are, or your output is absolutely the size of a much larger foundation. Absolutely. So I can see all those reasons to do that. Uh, many philanthropists want to be able to spend out in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's an understanding that you, you know, the old Ford Foundation uh, model or Edsel Ford is spinning in his grave because the Ford Foundation isn't uh, operating in what was probably his interest. But that's okay. I the mean, famous I, cold, dead hand of the donor, <laughs> right? right. Yeah. <laughs> Holding on to the foundation. So, mm. given all those wonderful examples, is there any reason for a foundation to operate in perpetuity or even a very, very long spend down period? I can't come up with it. I literally can't come up with it. All I can, th- um, and this is, there's a great, I just read it the other day. I, I, I'm a little behind on my reading, but I read this recent uh, forum that was in the Stanford Social Innovation Review where Larry Kramer generously put himself up there oh, to be Larry. attacked by all the great philanthropy critics these days on him. the topic of spend down. And uh, he basically, it was, I don't know if it was spend down, but it, it was around a COVID, COVID spending. And he, he was making the case that we should not increase our spending during COVID because we have future things to be concerned about. I just can't put my, get my head around the idea of future things for foundations to be concerned about. I just, I appreciate that. Um, not to be too judgmental, but it sounds like someone who wants a job for a while. And I, I just, I think there's, there's just, in every way that we operate, there is such dire need for the foundation sector to step up at, in much grander ways. And we just simply don't need to build institutions that last in philanthropy, in my view. And that's a high-level comment that we can could be debated endlessly and I think still is. Um, but at this rate, I am not concerned with foundation assets being available. We are we are way out there uh, in terms of the amount of assets held by foundations beyond I think what anyone ever would have imagined. And yet, the corollary situation is that um, the wealth gap between Black people, Latinx people, and white people is wider than it's ever been. I think that may have been too strong a statement. It's quite wide. Um, the average uh, wealth uh, for a white family is about $135,000. For black families, it's below $10,000. Latinx families are about the same and going down. And you would think that with assets going up in foundations, we could in some way put a dent in that. And I'm just not satisfied until we do. 
And I can't imagine you can sit around in a gigantic foundation office like some people do and say, hey, uh, we should be here forever because we can continue to chip away at these problems. I don't see it. Is there a good time frame? 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? That's a great question. That's a great question. I don't have an answer for that. Um, Here's what I will say as an old strategy guy. Um, Let the strategy decide. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I've learned. I'm very happy that we have a spend down date of 2029. However, we decided that before we completed the strategies. And I think it's worth, and I'm not saying it, I would change it necessarily now that we have them, but it, there's an argument to be made that, you know, meet with community, take in community voice, work together, and together you can make a determination on what the best timeline is. Um, I'll tell you one thing that's interesting that's coming up now is that not all of our issue areas will close at the same time. And I hadn't thought about that. It was the directors that said, I think I can get mine done by 2026. Huh. I think I can get mine done by 2028. And I'd, I'd like mine to go right up to the edge. So that's interesting. Um, and again, that in a way was driven by strategy. So I don't know if there's a timeline. I think it really has to be driven by what your goal is and what, what the, how the community feels about that goal and how you get to the when the right endpoint is based on that. What do you think philanthropy does best? <laughs> Take your time. Um, I like to look at it as what could philanthropy do best? Okay, fine. And, you know, in my view, what, what most people may not realize, even people that work in foundations, is that this is not our money. This is the American people's money for the most part. Yes, you can quibble on some 20 to 30 percent. But for that reason, I would think that our objective would be to beat the government's returns on any issue we get ourselves involved in. And if if we're and with that in mind, our, I think we're philanthropy. So I'll answer that question. Where philanthropy is really great is when it's, it pilots innovation for government to pick up. That's always been my view. And I'd love to see as we move, as we continue down, um, mostly white people are continuing on to an equity journey right now. Mm-hmm. We're all really taking into consideration reparations and other issues like that. I think there's a way for philanthropy to do really dynamic reparative work that government could then, you know, jump in on because philanthropy really should be a de-risking agent. Otherwise, it should just be handed back to the American people. If we can't beat the government returns, we should give it back. And uh, that's that's just typically how I look at it. So, ooh, this is I always like it when when the podcast ends up in a brainstorm because <laughs> you you could, you could actually set kind of what the what the market. Right. If, if the government doing something constitutes the market, what that market is and what your return needs to be. Yes. And that sounds – there. someone within the sound of our voice or pod or whatever, the, right. or electrons. I, I, I hope there's someone out there who, who takes this on and, and, <laughs> I and, do too. and reports back. I we're do gonna, too. We, I mean, you know, it could be on any measure. Right. Right? It could be on literacy. It could yeah. be on uh, – whatever nutrition it could be anything truly anything right and and now then you have to of course um allow for political wind shifting because the politics is no by no means linear right no that's (laughs) very true you'd have to beat the market in any given but there is there is a there is a consistency you hope from, from to some degree from year to year on how agencies engage the public and the politics sits more in the arena of policy setting. And the agencies actually have to execute. And, and that's where philanthropy, I mean, we've got tremendous partnerships with numerous agencies across Hawaii and the Bay Area. And these are great partnerships, piloting really interesting work. Um, and it has to be that way for us because we're going to disappear and we need a sustaining agent to be our partner. And that's why, uh, that's really when it hit me, wow, we really should be innovating on behalf of government so that government can take it on without the risk. What do you tell young people who get into this field? I always say that philanthropy is a little bit like, you know, kids who watch the other kids playing on the playground because they don't really do anything. They <laughs> stand there and watch. They give money to be able to do stuff. Right. It's, it's an odd profession to get yourself into, especially at the beginning of your career. But sure. we work with a lot of young people who have the potential to really transform how we think about 
whatever this institution yeah. is. What do you have to say to those folks getting into this business? First of all, I say, how did you find it? Always, <laughs> because I didn't find it until I was in my 30s. So I'm always amazed. We've got a great, great internship program here. I love it. And we just had our first cohort, incredible, incredible students. And I was so shocked that I just thought for them, wow, you're in there. You, you're in at 21 and 19 and in the foundation sector. I didn't even know what that was, even though there was anything like that. Um, I would say to, to, to absolutely hold the institutions that you want to work in accountable to the voice of community, always. We lose touch with that very quickly if, if we had it at all in, 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 these, in foundations. And so I really have, I sound like, I cannot believe I sound like this already. I, I just, Wait, you sound like your grandfather. Yes. I have hope for the next generation. <laughs> Kids I really today. do. I do. I'm not. Thank God. I have great debates with my son about the music the kids are listening to these days, but I do have great hope for where things are going around recognition of identity, uh, merely in the debates on pronouns and, uh, and, and how identity shows up and the importance of it in, in, in this sector and how hard we need to work to ensure that people like me are not in charge down the road. People who actually, we need people who have lived experience in charge of foundations uh, over time as, as, as the sector, I hope, matures. And I would call that a maturation if it happens. And any advice for your counterparts? Because as we all know in comms, peer-to-peer -peer marketing is the best kind. So for those foundation CEOs who are sitting out there from there, sitting in their you know corner, nice office probably, uh, it, what what do you say to them? What or, or let me put it a different way. Yeah. What do you say to your counterparts when you go to the CEO special <laughs> secret sauce meetings? <laughs> What, what, what kind of conversations do you have and what kind of advice, if, you're, if you deign to offer any, yeah. understanding how it gets taken in certain circumstances? What do you, well, it starts with a secret handshake. Uh, okay. Once that's complete. Oh, good. Uh, Is it like, like when Barry Bonds would hit a home run? There'd be like 97 taps in a thing? That's right. Right, good. Um, great lore there, by the way. Thank you. Um, you know, I, 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 look, I've, I've been, I've been um, humbled tremendously in the last couple of years with a combination of events here at the foundation and in the in the equity journey we've been on. So I think I would say mostly I ask for assistance. I ask for ideas and thoughts, and I, I mean that sincerely. Uh, I've gone from being someone who thought he had a lot to say to someone who's doing a lot of listening. And that's it. That's really it. I think listening and, and being in a learning position as much as you can be, you're not asked to be in that position as a CEO. You're supposed to, I think, there's a there's a, a normative out there, a norm that, you know, we're supposed to come in. Paul used to say, Paul Brest, I think he still says it all the time. You know, you're never more beautiful, more funny, and more intelligent than when you ran a foundation. And I, I kind of feel like I'm the opposite. And I, I think I think it's important to try to stay there, listen and learn. Um it just, it, it really is the best place to be. And I try to do that with my colleagues. I, you know, there aren't a lot of roundtables that I'm in, but I am often one-on-one. -on -one. I was just out having a beer the other night with one of the CEOs here locally. And we're doing, we're just basically trying to figure it out. You know, you're, this is not easy. Social change, it turns out, not quite as easy as you think. I'm always amazed by, um, you know, the, the big, the, the behemoth minds and business leaders of, of the world in which we live that, you know, created a payment system online and became billionaires and naturally thought, I can apply that to social change. Sure. Same thing. I can get people to do things differently, to be different, to culturally shift at the same rate. It's got to be that easy. And they build foundations and they go through strategic plans and they see no no results, as they put it. And it's 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 actually not true. There are results happening everywhere with the philanthropy we do. It's just not in, in the in the rubric of a social return on investment. It's it's a social change element. You know, revolutions happen quickly, but what gets you there can take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And I think philanthropy needs to be more mindful of that. But so that requires learning and listening. That's what you do during those hundreds of years. Well, it's it's great advice. And actually, the the saying on Paul Breast's desk was, "With money in your pocket, you're handsome, you're funny, and you okay. sing well too." <laughs> I remember That's it to so this good. day. Well, That's good. Um, Glenn, you are all of the above. <laughs> thank you, Eric. <laughs> Glenn Gallich, the CEO of the Stubsky Foundation, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, great pleasure. This was fun. Same here. Thanks.
And we're back. Thank you, Mr. Glenn Gallish. <laughs> I want you, Greg, I want you to go home and say it a hundred times. I want you to write it. Gallich, 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 Gallich. Well, it's a good, it's a good uh, spelling too, because it's G-A-L-A-I-C-H. So Oh, you Glenn could go anywhere with Gallich. that. Yeah, yeah, totally. She's very totally. flexible. So I, we're it's brown. Funny. You and I are both brown. There's really nowhere to go with that. We have nothing. We have nothing of interest or of note around our names. Um, so this, while you guys were talking, I was thinking, I totally can understand why you were fast friends as you connected in the hallways, but also the notion of just fellow traveler, Glenn's journey into philanthropy. This is easily one of the most interesting processes I think we've had of how you get there and what's going on. What you, do you think about that? You st- That's right. You start with a four hour time slot on working assets radio. <laughs> but can we say it again? pretty good start. <laughs> how many of our people are coming from journalism in some way? You know, how many of our people are doing things like that? At I don't least know. One. I th- yeah. <laughs> Mr. Glenn Gallich. That so that's an interesting start to all of these things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, as it happens, Glenn learned to process information and communicate it wisely and interestingly uh, from the get go. But then, yes. So he has a, a a wonderful start, and obviously is a. It's, this is not the finish, but it's a, a very interesting middle, I guess I would say. Well, because Glenn has done nothing but start things, it seems like, throughout his entire career. So it's an interesting moment for Stupski. But so he starts with the Global Philanthropy Forum. And I thought that origin story was so interesting, you know, coming together with a group of uh, other grant makers and starting to think. And again, we've had this conversation before. What's it like when you get the opportunity? You're given the keys to the car, so to speak. And you say, let's go there and why. And I thought his reflections on how that process came together was really, really incredible. It seems like it served him well later. It served him well throughout his entire career. Well, you know, here's the thing. You could go to work for the Global Philanthropy Forum, and then you could go work for the Philanthropy Workshop West, and you could take all that information and drive it into the ground. And be, <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. That you could, you could just go into that direction and navel gaze and not, you know, you can go along and get along. And I think that it is quite clear from my conversation with Glenn and how I know him and how anybody has seen him who knows his work or sees what Stupski Foundation is doing, that that's not what's happening here. Well, mm-hmm. what do you think? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Well, so let's get into the, let's get into the conversation with the, the spend down at Stupski for sure. But before we go there, could you just talk about the philanthropy workshop a little bit? Because this progression from launching the global philanthropy forum and then going from there to this, I want to call it, a training and incubation site for emergent philanthropists. That's what I would call the philanthropy workshop. Yeah. Yes. Or how would you say that's, it? No, that's exactly right. So you have these donors and they want to learn more about how to do their philanthropy, how to measure its success, how to decide what to invest in or to give to, and to just know, to be, th- to be thinking a lot more carefully about philanthropy. Now, again, you could take this in a lot of directions. And you could basically, you know, mirror back to your don't big these great big donors. These are pe- people of means that oh, whatever fabulous idea you have is just great. God bless you. But that's <laughs> not what Glenn was doing over there, and that's not, uh, you know, that that only gets you so far anyway. And so this this was an organization and a program that was designed to actually try and come up with good outcomes. Now. Obviously, donors get to pick the things that they're most interested in. But once they do that, then you figure out, well, how do you actually make sure that your money makes a difference? And that's what this was designed to do. So Glenn certainly had this amazing proving ground to work with donors, to see how this works, to see what's working and what doesn't and all that other stuff. And then when he ends up at a reasonably large foundation, applying all those lessons into one institution and to work with this one donor, it was uh, Joyce Stupski for almost all this time on mm. on helping shape a larger institution with staff and mm-hmm. a public face and strategies and all that stuff. So uh, he was well-trained, but he also took advantage 
of the opportunity to come up with something that makes sense and that's interesting and good. And I think he's doing great stuff. I mean, it's cool. Well, and I think that the philanthropy workshop West is its first formulation in terms of how I got to know it. You know, it also was located at an interesting place and time, right? Because wasn't it located for a period actually at the Hewlett foundation? Wasn't, yeah, so the West Coast version was incubated at Hewlett. There was an East yeah. Coast version. It was the Philanthropy Workshop. It was out okay. of, I think Rockefeller was one of the funders. It was on the East Coast, and that happened first. And mm-hmm. then they started one out on the West Coast that was incubated at Hewlett. The offices were inside the Hewlett Foundation Citadel. And they, <laughs> and it was, and there was very close contact between Hewlett staff and Philanthropy Workshop staff. And there was, you know, those donors would sit in with our program staff and talk to them and learn from them and stuff like that. So it was a, a, a nice little overlap. And so that's, that's where that happened, but it was, it was really fun to, and Glenn wasn't the first, ex, I think he was executive director of philanthropy workshop West. Um, mm-hmm. Christine, uh, Christine Sherry was his predecessor and she helped to get it going there. And, and then Glenn took over when she left, but it was a really interesting I, I every so often I would come in and talk to some of their donors and it was great. I, I learned a lot and it was it's all of a type of of donors trying to come up with a way to do a better job of of investing and using philanthropy to make the world better, not worse. Which is well, good and leveraging this incredible so the convening power of the Hewlett Foundation and the heart of Silicon Valley at a time when Silicon Valley wealth is really growing exponentially. So there's incredible philanthropic resources that you can start directing and guiding there. Yeah, so well, this... and that was, by the way, I forgot the actual mm. point I was trying to make, which completely went out of my brain. Imagine <laughs> that, which was that this was at a moment when Hewlett and a number of other big foundations were getting very excited about so-called strategic philanthropy. Mm-hmm. Paul mm-hmm. Brestas, our, our president of the Hewlett Foundation at the time, was he wrote a book on it, and it was... People were trying to now think about, well, can we be more strategic with our philanthropy? And so I think that was an attractive component of what Philanthropy Workshop West was learning and teaching and what we were all trying to figure out, um, whether this thing made sense and if so, how do you do it? So Stupski is not only doing its work and doing it well, but has decided to spend down. And where does that insight, where does that instinct come from? Is that is that coming out of the philanthropy workshop? Where does this notion that philanthropy that foundations don't have to be ever enduring institutions to sustain impact? Where where does that idea come from? All right. So you're, what you're trying to tell me, Kirk, is that I forgot to ask Glenn why there's. <laughs> 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 I can't. I can't answer for the witness, but what, but what I can say is, is that it is a. I would say maybe a growing movement hmm. that we we saw Atlantic Philanthropies spend themselves out. Edna McConnell Clark Foundation is almost finished spending itself out. There are a number of other foundations that have done so with the understanding, and then there is this concept in philanthropy called giving while living, which is what. Um, what Atlantic was was advancing this idea that you shouldn't basically it's it's a it's like you, when you do a, a a will the lawyer always tells you don't litigate from the grave uh, <laughs> that you know, say who gets what but don't put any conditions on it I think this is a version of that which is that you are, are going to do your philanthropy while you're still alive and then you're done and that you shouldn't who knows what the next generation will do? Who knows what ne- the problems are of the next generation? And who knows whether you will have actually applied every asset that you had available to you to the the issue that you want to address in your lifetime? And I think that's where Glenn is going with this, which is that uh, <laughs> I thought it was very interesting. He said that he can't think of a single reason why a foundation would not spend right. itself out over right. what he couldn't tell us was what time frame he thought made the most sense but he did seem to think that we shouldn't come up with that perpetual foundations are probably not the best way to do philanthropy so how do we reconcile some of these themes we've been hearing from because on the one hand i think we've heard that giving well is one of the most extraordinarily difficult things you can do 
that there's actually more money than good ideas out there. On the other hand, we've heard spend it all down. And then another hand looks at the world and says, it's obvious that there are glaring and pressing needs everywhere. Just throw all the money in a helicopter, drive to fly it to the poorest parts of the world and push it out the door. What do you think? I mean, how do you reconcile those things? Because there's part of me that thinks about foundation spending down and I get a little bit scared. I think what's a world without philanthropy look like? The flip side is I, th- I say, we know major philanthropists who've even decided to give it all away, they say, whose wealth is greater today than it was when they first started their philanthropies and first started giving it scale. So how, how do you reconcile all this? All right, what, do you, go, what sense do you make of it? Uh, I already forgot what the question was, but <laughs> here's what I think. Uh, a couple of things. One is that there is, I can't see the day when we run out of rich people. <laughs> And so if today's rich people give it all away, tomorrow there's going to be other rich people. If the day ever comes when we run out of rich people, God bless us all because rich people can cause more harm than they than they fix. <laughs> Wasn't so, that one of the recent comments on the podcast? Let's try going. Let's try not having billionaires for a while. Let's see how we like it. If we don't like it, we'll get we'll get them back. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think that. So I I think on that score, if if mm-hmm. all your rich people gave away their money while they're still living, then the other the new rich people will come in behind them. With any luck at all, there will be some culture of of uh, philanthropy. That mm. so that's the one thing. The other thing I thought was which was really interesting, and I loved Glenn's piece on this which is that philanthropy should beat the market Mm. that government establishes if that's Mm -hmm. the norm that you can that uh, government dollars spent on climate change this or um you know dealing with income inequality that if if that's the market if philanthropy can't beat the market then Mm. it shouldn't be there and that (laughs) any foundation should set that trying to determine what that market is, what the cost of beating it is and all that other stuff that like, that's a really good way to think about, are are we making a difference? Which is, are we doing better than the, the public sector could do in this, Mm -hmm. in, in whatever area that we're working on? And you, you should be able to answer that question with some confidence. And if you're, if you can't, then what are you doing? Well, and Glenn is noting there rightfully that these are public resources in the sense that they exist by fiat of the tax code, right? So yeah. you're 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 matching that return on investment. Well, I've got to say, Glenn is an essay in humility as he talks about this. I mean, because it just seems like he's on his own journey to think this through. He's 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 shifted in his own perspectives and brings this enormous experience to it. So you have written about the spend down of the Atlantic philanthropies. What happens on the other side of this for Glenn? And I want to say, write your book, Glenn. Oh, Glenn. 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 You should ghost it, right? Don't you learn? I mean, don't you learn so much doing this? Nobody ghosts a book for Glenn. (laughs) Write his own book. Uh, (laughs) What was the question, Kirk? (laughs) What's Glenn going to learn and what's he going to do with it? What's after the Stopsky for Glenn? Oh, I don't know. Whatever it is, is going to be interesting. And who, yeah. you know, he, it's he's he's great. He's really smart, fabulous guy, and oh, uh, I think he adds a ton to the conversation. And I learned a lot, which is always fun. And he inspired me. We got a little brainstormy, which was kind of fun too. <laughs> uh, I just there's and and he's candid, and it's you know, it's yes. great to see a foundation CEO who's willing yeah. to kind of take off the gloves and shake right. it up. You know, get right. in there with you. Smart, humble, well-spoken, and a fellow traveler. Glenn Gallich. Well done, sir. Thank you so much for being on Let's Hear It. Thank you for all of your work. Thank you for, for what Stupski has done and will continue to do and the model you're creating. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Uh, Eric, that was an amazing Please let us know if you have any thank thoughts about what you heard today thank or you. people we should have today. on the show. And that definitely Thanks, everybody. Until yourself. next time on Let's Hear It. And we'd like to thank... John Beltrano, our enthusiastic How production assistant. John Ali, the tuneful hey, and inspiring it. composer of our theme music. Our sponsors, the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. And please check out Lumina's terrific podcast, Today's Students, Tomorrow's Talent, and you can find that at luminafoundation.org. We certainly thank today's guest, and of course, all of you. And most importantly, thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Brown. Okay, everybody. Until next time. Let's hear it.